Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. How are you doing, Sam? How is everything? I'm good. Like, I didn't realize that it was already Safe Harbor Day. Oh, oh boy. Don't get me started on Safe Harbor Day. Right? I mean, we'll get into that later on the episode. So everyone, definitely stay tuned because that'll be happening in your news updates. But let's just say December 8th. Never the same, never the same, once you know that it is also Safe Harbor Day. Once you know what Safe Harbor Day, you guys, once you know what that is, you won't be able to ever be the same. So stay tuned, and we'll explain. <laughs> but no, today's a big day. We have an amazing guest on, we have amazing stories to cover, but we also have an amazing segment to talk about, a fresh new segment that I think is really important if you really want to be an informed citizen of this country and we are bringing all of our favorite ships into the harbor and putting together our list of who we ship in the political world and quick disclaimer these are all hypotheticals okay we know most of these people are in stable healthy probably marriages and relationships but this is hypothetically if everyone's single who are we shipping together to be a power couple okay so, Sam, do you want to kick it off with the, our first and probably favorite one? Eric Solwell, who is... Such a cutie. Oh my god, like absolutely, like the smile, ooh, ooh, so cute. He's got that Cali boy vibe. I mean, he is the U.S. representative for California's 15th congressional district since the year 2013. I will have to give you some inside scoop really fast. Saying Cali is not cool. And as a fellow California native, it's very looked down upon when people call it Cali. 
So just for everyone too listening. Shit. Wait, this is like low key good to know. It's just kind of basic because, I, you know, it was just like thrown on those trashy tourist shirts. This all makes sense now. That's so funny. So it's like the equivalent of like, I heart New York. 100%. Yeah. But back to our regular scheduled programming. <laughs> Who do you ship Eric Swalwell with? Let's hear it. Nancy Pelosi, the queen, the woman in the red jacket, the one we all think, wow, how does she do it? Absolute powerhouse with this couple. Hear us out. Like you've got absolutely like two powerhouses in different ways, but like Nancy Pelosi is running the show. I like to call him and men like him purse holders. And that might sound condescending to some, but like we need more purse holders in the world, especially with all these powerhouse women coming up in the ranks and just shutting shit down. Like we need our men to be there as our support system behind the scenes. Men have to come into the new age and realize, you know what? You're not going to be the big name in the relationship, and that's fine. Eric will just be such a supportive, stable guy on the sidelines for Nancy. And I just, it really makes my heart warm to like think of them together. And I also feel like she just needs a younger man. She's too big of a deal. She also can teach him so much. She's like too big of a powerhouse to have any man who's older and maybe like thinks he can control her. No, like she needs a younger man to be there for her and like look up to her, you know? Yes, I approve. So for our second couple, a bit of a curveball and definitely different vibe than our previous couple. So Kaylee McEnany, press secretary, Trump administration, and then... Let's just hear it for Madison Cawthorn. Smoke show. Who is literally a smoke. Like, I absolutely agree with 0% of the things he stands for. Like, absolutely zero. But this representative-elect from North Carolina, let me tell you, it got a chiseled jawline that we can absolutely, like, sandwich. Like, wow. And let's be real. Like, Kaylee's gorgeous. They are together just an absolutely stunning couple yeah i think this couple is physically definitely a match made in heaven i also feel like while i don't agree with anything madison cawthorn says i do feel like he is generally level-headed especially when looking at the republican party today and maybe a little open-minded which is great and i think can really bring Kaylee like out of this dark cloud of the Trump administration I feel like they would just have a healthy growth oriented relationship that could be beautiful yeah either that or we just like created a monster but the next couple also another set of good looking folks like let me tell you Mitt Romney I mean I don't I think it goes without saying but I don't think it's said enough that Mitt Romney is extremely attractive and then Michigan governor Gretchen Whitmer gorgeous as well the two of them I just feel like they are kindred spirits but they are on different sides of the aisle Gretchen Whitmer is a Democrat Mitt Romney is a Republican though he has started to make a name for himself this year of trying to be a little bit more bipartisan they would be cute Maddie give me your reasons I just think that Mitt has a long-standing name in politics has been around for a while and Gretchen is kind of up and coming in the political scene whether you agree with her or not her career is taking off and I think Mitt can really help her through all of that I mean she's been through a lot this year people have attempted to literally kidnap her and she's just faced a lot of scrutiny so 
I don't know. I feel like Mitt has been around the block and could really help her through this journey of hers. And also as he kind of settles down in his career and she's taking off, he can be her purse holder. But that's it for our ships. We'll be doing this more. If you have any suggestions of who you think we should ship or people you would ship together, let us know. DM us or email us, girlonthegothepodcast at gmail.com. Maybe your ship will be featured on our next segment. But today we are talking to Simona Grace from Moms in Office, a political action committee that helps get mothers elected to office. But yeah, I guess to start, we definitely want to get to know you a little bit and your background and kind of what your role is in the political space today. Well, thank you for having me. And my role in the political space, I think it's one of those unusual stories. I think politics has never been in the cards for me. It just so came about that I was very passionate about women's representation in politics and also policies that would help working families. And I was just thrown into it. I was a single mom living in Los Angeles in 2018 when I realized that there needs to be more that we need to do to help women get represented in our government. And this is how it started. Moms in Office just started as a mom who was concerned in Los Angeles about her son and about our democracy and our voices not being heard in our government. And it went from one idea to the next, how I can help and do something about this. And I founded Moms in Office as a political action committee to help support moms who are running for office. And here am I now, two years later, it seems like it's been a second, but my role in the political space is to help women in politics, to help them get elected, to remove the barriers that keep so many women from becoming the policymakers we need today. And also in my role as a mom, I'm an activist and a voice for all working moms who are bearing the brunt of the burden of this pandemic But even before, moms who deserved a much better life, but our system has not been set up in a way uh, that gave justice and economic justice for working moms. Totally. So important. So what was the catalyst of making you start this path? You say you don't have like much political background, right? So where did you see this gap and what made you really make the move to go do this? You know, before I start talking about in 2018, what was the catalyst that started this? I think it's important to add my background as a person who's an immigrant living in America, because even though that's my personal story, it's so hard to separate it from the political. Since I grew up in Hungary, in a communist country, without all these civil liberties that we have in the United States, and these were always so important to me, and I was very determined to live in this country that I believed was just an amazing place to live. As a child and as a teenager growing up, I always admired American democracy. So I had this background of living in a country and knowing what it means to live without democracy, to then watching the Berlin Wall fall and seeing an emerging social democracy in Hungary. And it was still not a life that I envisioned for myself. It was still very, very difficult to live in Hungary after communism. So at 18, I immigrated to the United States and I put myself through college here. And over the years, I became a citizen. So I always had this 
overwhelming passion for American democracy as a citizen, as an immigrant, as a mom. So that fire was always there in me. And I think it's in us, in so many of us. But for me as an immigrant, I just really knew the other side of not living in a democratic country. And I think after 2016, I started noticing the decline of our democracy. And it just really hit home to me. I have experienced what it means to live in a country without democracy. And I became really concerned that, is this possible that in the United States, we can one day reach that point that our democracy will completely decline? So these are just the questions and the concerns I was having as a citizen and as a single mom raising my son. And then fast forward to 2018, I became more involved with an organization that was supporting several candidates running for Congress. And one of those candidates was Katie Porter here in California. And as I learned more about Congresswoman Porter, I was just so inspired by her story as a single mom. I was so inspired by her passion and her intelligence and everything that she wanted to do to help working families, just a genuine interest in helping others. And when she was elected to Congress, I realized that she is the only single mom elected to Congress. And I started looking into more statistics as to women's representation in our government, mom's representation in our government. And the more and more I looked into it, the statistics that I found were extremely concerning to me. Less than 24% of our Congress um, are women. And out of those, we only have 25 women in Congress who have children under 18. So what I noticed that motherhood and having children in America It's a huge barrier for women to enter politics, and women have to delay their entry into politics because they want to raise their children first or because they have to raise their children first. There's so much bias and judgment that goes with being a mother in America that it's almost impossible for women to run for office and not be questioned about their commitment to their children and their commitment to our country at the same time. How can you do these two things at the same time? This shouldn't be a question, right? But It is. It's actually fueling our fire even more to represent our country because we are mothers. So, you know, this was kind of the starting point. And again, I was just still sitting here in Los Angeles as a mom, like literally on my kitchen table right here. And I said, I'm going to now learn about how to do this because I still did not have the fundraising network. I didn't have the political expertise uh, to really start this with a huge amount of funding. And I said to myself, you know, this is exactly how I should be doing this because I'm fighting for women who do not have the fundraising network. I'm fighting for women who are the outsiders. So I must do this as the outsider and I must succeed because if I do so, I will encourage so many more women to come after me and start organizations and also encourage moms who are running for office that just because they're political outsiders, that doesn't mean that they don't have a space in politics. So it literally started from this point of having a great sense of determination and not much else. And I had to really just be resourceful. And I think as a single mom and an immigrant, being resourceful was very easy for me because everything in my life is always about being resourceful. And I really just had to teach myself everything from the ground up, which was how to build a website, right? 
how to register with the IRS or the Federal Elections Commission. Everything from compliance to accounting to graphic design to learning how to fundraise. I started like that. And I had no other choice. But after you know one conversation to the next, my conversations became bigger and I was invited to um, speak at conferences and people were more interested in what I was doing. And I had such overwhelming amount of support from other women who were introducing me uh, to other women who could help me, making introductions for me, encouraging me to do this. And, you know, I thought about giving up almost every day because I think once you decide that you're going to start something, the next moment is, oh my gosh, what have I done? We always second guess ourselves. Yeah, totally. I think we can both relate to that. And I think too, to your point about societal pressures and figuring out, you know, okay, is this the time for me to run? Is this not? All of the different barriers for women that come up, especially with motherhood, are so difficult to navigate. And I, I think within that is also that fundraising level. It's so hard in general to ask for money. And I think it's even harder for women to ask for money. It just doesn't, it's not taught to us. It doesn't feel like it's the natural thing. So you starting this pack, I think is particularly interesting to, you know, to that point and makes me kind of wonder of all the different levels that we can, you know, support women at in the political sphere. Why was it the financial one that you went after in particular? Unfortunately, money is a really huge component in, in our politics right now. And I have seen amazing women running for office who do not get noticed and they do not get their name out. They may be amazing activists, but nobody knows that they are amazing activists because we just can't get their name out there. And right now for a political candidate, especially one who's running for Congress, to get their name out there, to run a campaign, they have to spend a lot of money on advertisement. They have to spend a lot of money on running a professional campaign. And you can't run for office and maintain a full-time job. I think campaign finance reform is needed. But at the same time, I did what I could do at the time, which was I may not be able to change campaign finance laws from 2018 to 2020. But what I can do is make sure that the money that's raised in politics at least flows more toward women and mothers. And that's what I thought was the most effective way for me to help them at the time. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, wow. I'm just blown away. You're also awarded the 2020 California Mother of the Year Award by AmericanMothers.org. So can you tell us a bit about that and what that meant to you and really what that award means in general? Yes. Well, if my son runs out of his room any second, he may tell you that that award is not correct. He says... Mom, you're not a mother of the year in California. You're the best mom in the world. You're mother of the world. You know, it meant a lot for me for many reasons. Most importantly, I'm a single mom raising my son in Los Angeles, a single working mom who's also running an organization. You know, I'm not this typical mom who could do so much for her son. There's so many things I cannot do for my son, but I love him more than anything. And I'm fighting for him every single day of my life. So in a conventional sense, our lives may look crazy, right? I may not be, you know, the mom who would be uh, taking him to soccer lessons every afternoon because I have to work. So for me to be recognized for my role as a mom in this role as a single mom meant a lot for me 
because there are millions of moms just like me who are questioning themselves every day, whether they're good moms, just because they have to make a lot of sacrifices to get through life. And we should never question ourselves, whether we're good parents, based on our financial needs or based on how much we can give to our children other than caring them and loving them. So that meant a lot for me on a personal level. And as far as the American Mothers Organization, I think they are an amazing group who have been around since the 1930s. And every single year, they honor an inspirational mom in every state. And many notable individuals before me were Hillary Clinton, uh, First Lady Eisenhower, you know, many women in politics and in the nonprofit world who I really look up to who accomplished so much. So it was a really great honor for me. At the same time, I was also hesitant to accept something that puts this label on me that I'm mother of the year, which could insinuate that I'm better than someone else. But I accepted the award because their vision is to give voice to mothers. And giving voice to mothers is exactly what I believe in. Because working moms in America have not been heard for way too long. And if this platform could enhance my voice, and if I could speak for others in a more effective way, then it's definitely something that would not only help me, this award will not only help me, but most importantly, all of those who I need to speak for. Because you know, those of us who have a platform and have a microphone in our hand, you're responsible to speak for those who may never get a chance to hold a microphone. That's our role as activists. And I wholeheartedly believed in the organization's mission. And I've been so proud to be involved with them throughout this year. That is so cool. Oh, my God. But I think that is so true and, like, so important is knowing, you know, it's not just accepting any and every award. It's thinking about, okay, what is the impact here? What's the organization about? Is this really going to help my message and my my activism and my goals and thinking about it as a broader spectrum thing. It's not just like, Hey, here's a nice like little trophy. You're going to put it on the mantelpiece. It's going to look great. It's like, what is this going to do for my cause? So I think that's really noble for you to also think about the larger impact of what something on sort of the, the PR and marketing scale for yourself looks like and how that, that impacts everything as well. Quick break. Looking to make a statement and make a change as we head into the new year? Check out Social Goods, an online store that offers a curated slate of statement-making merchandise that gives back to nonprofits tackling today's most pressing issues. From the Jed Foundation and Fair Fight Action to Planned Parenthood of Greater New York, She Should Run, and more. Best of all, we've partnered with Social Goods to offer a special discount to our listeners. Go to social-goods.com and use the code GIRLINTHEGOV15 at checkout to receive 15% off your purchase. That's social-goods.com and code GIRLINTHEGOV15. That's Social Goods, where every transaction comes with real action. Well, we want to move into our segment called I Have a Stupid Question and start to talk about PACs and get a really foundational understanding of that for those who don't know. And so really to start, what is a political action committee? Before I tell you, I would like to say how amazing it is that you have that segment because exactly why so many women do not get involved in politics because they are afraid to ask the questions because they question themselves whether they qualified enough. And I always tell women, I don't know so much about politics. I didn't know so much about politics when I started. But I had one thing that I knew really well is I knew 
what women are going through in our country because I struggled myself. And I also knew that all I need to do to be an activist is to care for other people. And it's important that we empower women that we ask those stupid questions because I was not an expert at PACS two years ago, but I asked a lot of these questions and I studied these questions and became better at it. So I love that the two of you are doing that. I just needed to put that out there before I tell you what a PAC is. So a PAC is short for Political Action Committee, and it's an organization that is set up to influence the outcome of an election. And political organizations influence the outcome of an election by supporting or opposing a candidate or a cause. And there are several different political action committees that I can tell you about, such as PACs like Moms in Office that represent an ideological interest. And then there are PACs that are connected to corporations, labor unions, And there's also super PACs that have no limits on the independent expenditures that they can make. So there's different areas of PACs and, you know, they are set up for different reasons. That makes a lot of sense. And I think just knowing that there's a reason behind them and that they can vary is something that's good to know. And like we said, with having these stupid questions isn't something that everyone knows. So it's really great to have some of the background As we dive in a little bit further, our next question is, how does a political action committee work? It's like, here's the the committee, but then what are the operations of it? Yes. So I'll tell you a little bit about the different ways that they are set up. And I think that will help us understand how they operate. In order to make a direct contribution to a candidate, unless you're a citizen, you have to be organized as a PAC. So different corporations cannot make direct contributions to a candidate, right? So some of the PACs that are connected are connected to corporations. And these corporations and PACs then solicit their employees for funds, and they give it to the candidates that they want to support and endorse. So these corporations have a certain interest, usually, and they bag those candidates who represent their interest. The same thing with labor unions. So these are the connected PACs. Non-connected PACs are not connected to any corporation or labor union, such as Moms in Office. We are a PAC that represents an ideology, and we support women who want to champion laws for working mothers and working families. Same thing with Emily's List. Emily's List is a PAC. They make direct contributions to candidates who will champion women's rights. So those are the non-connected PACs. And there is another non-connected PAC that I think we hear most about, and we refer to it as a super PAC. The difference between a super PAC and all the others is that super PACs do not make direct contributions to candidates. They make independent expenditures to oppose or support a candidate. And independent expenditures could be advertisements, most often these expenditures are negative ads. So anytime you see a negative ad, that usually comes from a super PAC, finance from a super PAC. And as far as organizations like Moms in Office, our role is to fundraise and determine who we're going to give the funds to to help those women. 
And some other PACs may fundraise to uh, finance their operations, such as salaries and training programs. So there's different ways that they can operate. I think the most important the most important way we can differentiate is how do they raise money? What are the limits that they have and who do they give it to? Yeah, wow. That's definitely very interesting. So how does a PAC raise their money? So it's very similar than somebody who's running for office, like a congressional candidate, for example. And fundraising works you know, different ways. I was really passionate about setting up a PAC that is mainly funded by small dollar donors through grassroots outreach and grassroots support. So we have received you know, thousands of donations and our average donations have been less than $20. We can accept donations up to $5,000 from an individual per calendar year. Some PACs do get those large checks and some PACs have fancy fundraisers with a very expensive price tag on a dinner to attend and shake hands with someone. So fundraising works many different ways. And I think we have experienced that this past election year, and we learned more about it through some of the presidential candidates making certain statements like Elizabeth Warren would not hold any of these closed door fundraisers. And she was more for grassroots support. So was Bernie Sanders. So it really is very similar to the way PACs raise money as candidates who run for office. And then within that space, you can decide that you want to focus on a lot of small dollar donors through email and social media outreach, or you would like to solicit large donations from supporters in politics. I think talking about the sort of the closed door element is the perfect segue into our next question, which is can PACs be corrupted? Obviously, there's usually a pro to something, but there's also cons. What are the cons to PACs as well? Yes. So I think anytime that there's money and power and influence, corruption is definitely something that you're going to see. I like to say that when it comes to being corrupted, there's different levels of it, right? So every PAC has to disclose their fundraising and their spending. So whether you're a super PAC or a PAC like Emily's List or Moms in Office, we have regular reports that we have to file and file these reports with the Federal Elections Commission. Candidates who run for office also have to file these same public reports. And this is actually accessible to you and the general public. So once a candidate, a PAC files a report, you can go on the FEC's website and search and actually take a look at every single thing that they spend their money on. So I love that transparency that we currently have with the reporting. But there's different ways that you can circumvent some of the spending and some of where, and where the money comes from. And usually the controversy surrounds super PACs. And even though super PACs also report their donors and their spending, there is a way that they can accept unlimited amount of funds from organizations such as a 501c organization. And those 501c organizations do not have to disclose their donors. So if a corporation makes a large donation to a 501c organization, and then that organization donates it to a super PAC, you don't see where the money comes from. It comes from a 501c, but it's not disclosed how the 501c organization got that money. So it's almost like there's a middleman that hides the information. Is it corrupt? No. But is it something that they should be doing? 
also know. So that's what the dark money in politics refers to. The other thing that super PACs should not be doing is coordinating with a candidate's campaign. So they may do negative advertisements. They may uh, buy ads on behalf of the candidate or to oppose the candidate, but they're not supposed to be coordinating that, that independent expenditure with the candidate's campaign, which is some, which is a lot of the times not the case because who runs the super PAC usually knows the person who runs the campaign. So I think the two most corrupt things that we see in the world of PACs is the dark money, how it's funneled into super PACs and coordinating with candidates campaigns that they're not supposed to be doing. With regards to corrupt spending, when it comes to candidates and also PACs, it's really hard for that information to come out in time. Because by the time you file your report, a lot of the times the candidate is already elected. Wow, that's really interesting. But also looking at like lobbying groups, what is the difference between a lobbying group and a PAC or a super PAC? So I think that's a really good question because they are different in a way that lobbyists usually influence policies and outcomes of policies, while PACs try to influence elections by electing a candidate, right? So the term lobbyist goes back to the times when individuals were hanging out in the lobby of a building and tried to catch an elected official before that official went in to vote. So that's in a way petitioning our government, which is one of our rights. That's how the term lobbyist emerged. So most of their um, activities are connected to talking to elected officials on behalf of a corporation or a union who hires them to try to stop policies from coming into place that would negatively affect the corporations. Sometimes they even write the laws for the congressmen. So that's the difference. I think you know the, where they can be similar is fundraisers, for example. Sometimes lobbyists can arrange fundraisers for elected officials. So can a lobbyist take an elected official out for lunch for more than $25? No. But can they host a 200,000 fundraiser and hand them a check for their campaign? Yes, they can. So is this illegal or corrupt? It's not unlawful, but this is this is just how it happens. Yeah. So I guess now getting into, too, I mean, you've touched on this and how I think when people look at PACs and the conversation around PACs and definitely super PACs, there is a lot of conversation around reform and campaign finance reform. And you've talked about how a lot of this dark money is not illegal and it's not technically corrupt because it's legally done. And these big corporations and big donors um, and big players are kind of just finding loopholes to fund these candidates and get their agendas pushed through our government ultimately. So what do you think are some campaign finance reforms that we need in order to kind of strip away some of this dark money and dark power from our politics? Yes, I think we can we can talk about that you know so much because I would love to see an entire overhaul in the way our campaign finance laws work in the United States. It really uh, doesn't allow a lot of people with working class backgrounds to even run for office or get a chance to run for office because most uh, people can't afford to uh, not work full-time and run for office. I think 99% of us in America rely on a paycheck to get by. 
we rely on a job to get health insurance. So I think the number one question that usually comes up from someone who decides to run for office is, well, how, how am I going to live and pay for this? I may raise the funds to buy advertisements and um, run my campaign, but you know, how am I going to live as an individual and take care of my child? So this is why we see Congress made up of really high network individuals, because those are the people who can afford not to work and run for office. So I would say that's one area where we definitely need to see reforms to make sure that there's more equity in this space and more it's a more inclusive space where everyone in America can run for office. Right now, only those who can afford to run for office, run for office. And with regards to super PACs and campaign finance law that we can talk about there. So in 2010, the Supreme Court ruled that political speech is has to be free speech. We cannot ban corporations and unions from making expenditures, independent expenditures to oppose or support a candidate. Because of that ruling, corporations and unions are now able to make unlimited independent expenditures through super PACs in order to oppose or support a candidate, most likely in order to oppose the candidate. Most of the spending that we see coming out from super PACs is spending on attack ads. So unfortunately, this is how our politics functions in America. This is how people win elections based on assassinating somebody's character with negative advertisements. So the interesting thing I have to say, though, about super PACs, even though the ruling was about unions and corporations, you know, that's what I think what we read, the, the line that we hear so much is corporations are not people, right? The reason why they're saying that is because political speech, uh, it was decided that it's free speech. So the talk comes from these corporations making statements through advertisements. So that's the speech part, right? The interesting part is, though, that most super PAC spending actually comes from a very small group of very wealthy individuals in America. So I would say two-thirds of all of uh, super PAC fundraising comes from 10 individuals in our country. So it gave a way for a very small group of powerful individuals in our country to influence elections, more so than corporations. But what we have seen on the on the plus side, right? So again, is, is it a plus that we have seen more grassroots donations and organizations like mine pop up to counteract that? Yes, it's a plus, but it's almost like a Band-Aid solution, right? So campaign finance reform would be the overhaul that's needed. But what we have seen in the 2008 midterm elections is this huge increase in small dollar donors across the country. About $1.6 billion was raised, according to AgDBlue, during the 2018 election cycle. And that's about twice as much as super PACs raised altogether. So, you know, that's the little glimmer of hope that I can give you here, that this ruling is controversial. We definitely need to overturn it. I don't believe that corporations are people. But in the meantime, we have seen a great amount of activism from people across the country who believe that their $5 is going to be their voice and they're going to put it towards these candidates 
because of the super PAC spending that we've seen emerge since 2010. Yeah, it's interesting too how I feel like so much of that activism has related to moms running for office, women in general as well. And it brings into the conversation, again, sort of what are barriers for women running for office? What are barriers for moms running for office? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. And, you know, to reiterate the fundraising part a little bit more, why is that a barrier for women? Most likely, if you are a wealthy professional running for office, your network is comprised of other wealthy professionals. So picking up the phone and asking for money is not a really difficult task because most of your friends and family will be able to raise the funds to start your campaign. If you are a working mom or if you're a mom who stayed home for a couple of years, if you're a mom who decided to take lower paying jobs because you had better benefits, your network does not consist of those wealthy individuals. So you do not have 100 people to call to raise $500,000. And that's the number one hurdle there. You know, women can't even run for office because they will not lose their health insurance because they have children to take care of. Health insurance in our country is tied to employment. Again, it, that influences so many areas of our life, even running for office, because women with children cannot afford to not have health insurance for their children. The next thing is they can't afford to live without a paycheck. So this is how many, many women are excluded. And with moms, I think the hurdle on top of the fundraising that they have to also overcome is the bias. The bias from voters, the bias from donors, everybody questioning moms, if they can balance being a mom and serving their constituents at the same time. Men never get this question asked who run for office. Actually, men who run for office, for Congress, who have a cute little family and they hold their children in their campaign photos, it works for them. You know, they all of a sudden so personable. And they're such a great dad and we should be voting for this great guy who's holding a baby. But you know, try doing that as a woman. You know, try holding a baby in, in, in your campaign materials or show up with a baby on stage and see what, they gonna, what questions are they going to ask you. And even if you show up at a campaign event without a baby, they ask you where the baby is and who's taking care of the baby. You know, this is so unfortunate that women just face so much of this cultural bias. And because of that, actually, they don't get as many votes as the, the male candidates do. It's just implicit in all of us. And if you take a look at our government, I you know, tell this to people all the time, close your eyes and imagine the president of the United States and tell me what you see. You see an old white guy, right? So this is just what lives in our imagination, that a politician looks a certain way. And women have to face that bias that they don't look like politics. Why? Because politics is mostly wealthy white male. So, and that's just so innate in all of us, we don't even realize it. We are still fighting to overcome these implicit biases. And it's just more present than than I would like to even believe it. It's just, that's the, that's the truth. I'm sure. And I'm sure once in office too, that bias seems to carry over. And there's even more barriers faced. So are there any particular ones, especially with women that you have worked with in their campaigns, getting them into office? Can you speak to some of the barriers that they face once they actually get there? Yes. 
they barely even had a, ba- a women's bathroom in on the, f- the floor of Congress in the past 10 years. They just got a, a women's bathroom. And it, it's just so crazy. So, you know, once women get elected, especially if they get elected to federal office, I think the challenges start from how are you going to manage the travel? How are you going to pay for a home in Washington, D.C. and in your home state at the same time? And even before we get to that, let's say you win your campaign in November, you will not get paid. You will not get your first paycheck until January. So now there you are from November to January, trying to find a way to get by financially, move to Washington, D.C. and set up a new home. So those financial hurdles continue for any for anyone without a wealthy background, especially for women. And then once it comes to serving, there are very, very limited ways to vote by proxy, for example. I, their calendar is challenging to get their calendar on time. I heard that from many Congress women who have young children that that they did not get their congressional calendars ready by December and as late as December for the next year. And it's really hard to plan your life around when you have to fly back and forth and you have children. But they are still looked at as a unique situation, right? Because even the women who serve in Congress, a lot of them are older, who do not have family responsibilities. A lot of them are also independently wealthy. So a lot of the ways Congress operates after you get elected you're still facing those same financial hurdles. I mean, their congressional salary is $174,000, I think, which may seem like a lot, but not when you have to maintain two homes and you have to uh, raise your children at the same time. So it's just, it's so challenging even after the point where you get elected. Yeah. So we have a really difficult campaign process that you have to get through. And then once you do potentially win that seat, it's a whole nother hurdle and it's a grind. And so what are some ways to combat that though? Because there's obviously like the implicit bias stuff, which is kind of harder to tackle and, you know, things like PACs that can raise money and help these women with their campaigns help. But how do we combat some of these like actual hurdles that make things very difficult and are very real? How, how do we combat that? And what are some of the solutions for women and especially for moms to function in a political job that is pretty arduous. I think the number one thing we can do and the only thing we can do is get to gender parity. Because once we get to equal representation in politics, then women will not be the unique situation anymore. They will not be the special interests uh, group anymore. They will be half of our elected officials and half of our elected officials will get the same rights as anybody else. I think it's really hard right now to, to advocate for themselves when it's only 25 of them who are raising children out out of 535 voting members. It's also really hard for uh, elected officials who are not independently wealthy uh, to ask for reforms when everybody else is. So I think the number one thing that we have to do and continue to do is diversify the representation in our government to make sure that it looks like us to make sure that our government resembles the diversity of the American people. And until it doesn't, we're not going to see any change for elected officials, and we're not going to see any change for working families in America 
who are reading for change. So this is why I think PACs have an important role because they a lot of them emerge to support these non-traditional candidates who did not have the support before. Another PAC is Justice Democrats, for example, uh, is a great organization and they support progressive candidates. They support candidates in primaries as well because I don't know how much we want to talk about running for office in a in a primary election opposing a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, it's you don't get a lot of support. So a lot of organizations emerge to actually help these candidates. And we need to continue getting them into office first. And once we get them into office and a more diverse makeup of Congress, then it's going to be more natural to see these changes uh, emerge. Yeah, so important. Well, there is a lot to be done. Also, topic of like childcare and all these things, we need to provide women resources to not only succeed in the political space, but in careers across the board. So hopefully we see more of that. And I think we are seeing, especially in the political space, women coming through and being elected into these offices. But definitely this topic of mothers, I feel like we're always talking about women representation, but the mothers are so important too. And I didn't realize that in our Congress, you said Katie Porter was our only single mother. That's crazy. So yeah, that's crazy. And she is such a boss. So if that doesn't speak volumes to the power of mothers and mothers with voices, I mean, I don't know what does. Yeah. And she was my inspiration to do what I'm doing. Until this day, she's my inspiration because I think she really just embodies the fact that being a mom is is just an asset. It's definitely shouldn't be looked at as a hurdle. It's something that makes us who we are, and it's it's going to make us fight even harder. It's going to make us relate to the lives of everyday Americans because we're living those lives. And I think we need you know a hundred Katie Porters in Congress. She's the best. Seriously, we really do. Well, this topic definitely needs to be highlighted more and more. And we're so happy to do that and to highlight your organization. So where can people find you guys, maybe get involved? Why don't you plug some of your social media? Yeah, it's easy to find us. It's Moms in Office on Twitter and Instagram. And you can go on our website, which is momsinoffice.org. You can send us an email or sign up um, to receive our newsletter. You can email me anytime if you want to get involved. I'm sure that I can find you a way to get more involved with us. Everyone who is involved with Moms in Office is a mom who works for us on a voluntary basis. Most of them are moms who actually ran for office themselves. Our executive director ran for office in Texas, and she's a single mom who was in the Navy. A lot of our board members are all moms who ran for office. And, you know, we are just this amazing group who also want to provide community for those women who are running for office right now, encouragement for women who are thinking about running for office, and really just encouragement for every mom at home to make sure that they become involved in politics, to make sure that they understand that they don't need to question themselves whether they can do this or not. So I would be so happy if you reach out to me and you want to learn more, you can find my email on our website, momsinoffice.org. So getting into our top stories of the week, we have three of the top stories that we think you guys need to know this week. And so Sam is going to kick us off. What's our first story? Yeah, so pretty wild. Obviously, this COVID journey has been 
insane on so many levels, but the element that we're all talking about right now is the vaccine and what the feds, the federal government, passed up a chance to lock in more of Pfizer's vaccine doses. So background, Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine has been shown to be highly effective against COVID-19. So obviously we want to get our hands on that. Turns out, unfortunately, back in, I believe it was August, the Trump administration decided not to lock in millions of doses when they had the chance. They were offered the opportunity to purchase millions, again, of doses, of additional doses of the vaccine for when it would be ready, and they declined. So, of course, that is under fire from just about everyone wanting answers there. The decision that they made to delay the delivery of the second batch of doses until Pfizer fulfills other international contracts. So what that means is other countries bid or were provided opportunity to purchase the vaccine once it was ready. And now Pfizer needs to fulfill those contracts as well. So we are not top of the list in terms of those additional batches. We now have to wait through everyone else. This revelation also comes as Trump plans to host a White House summit aimed at celebrating the expected approval of the first vaccine later this week. So interesting timing there. His administration is also seeking to tamp down public skepticism over the vaccine and secure a key component of essentially the Republican president's legacy, which is really interesting coming from a guy that suggested drinking bleach as a medical tool. I feel like this is just an ode to how this current administration has dealt with this entire pandemic, I am not by any means surprised that we missed out on an opportunity like this, but that's a lot of vaccines that we're missing out on, which we clearly, clearly fucking need. Well, next story is about the safe harbor law that is currently today when we are recording this safe harbor day. And you're probably thinking, what the fuck does that mean? But the safe harbor law locks Congress into accepting Biden's win. So Safe Harbor Day, it's December 8th. So other than Wisconsin, every state appears to have met a deadline in federal law that essentially means Congress has to accept the electoral votes that will be cast next week and the electoral college vote and sent to the Capitol for counting on January 6th. So those votes will elect Joe Biden as the country's next president. And it's called a safe harbor provision because it's kind of an insurance policy by which a state can lock in its electoral votes by finishing up certification of the results and any state court legal challenges by a congressional imposed deadline, which again this year is Tuesday, December 8th. So if you're listening to this on Wednesday, yesterday. <laughs> and what a federal law requires is that if a state has... Co- completed its post-election certification by December 8th, Congress is required to accept those results. We still have a lot of Congress members, particularly on the right, obviously, who have still not publicly accepted the election results, which is just absolutely insane. At this point, every legal challenge, pretty much, at least every significant one, has been declined in our court system, and there has just been no actual basis that support Trump's claims of voter fraud that we have been hearing nonstop since election day. So today is big though, because this is, you know, a federal law that is requiring Congress to accept those results. And so hopefully we will start to see some of these Congress members and just big names in our political system to 
agree with our democracy of how people voted and <laughs> accept these results. And so the Electoral College date is December 14th. That's next week. But Congress also set another deadline six days before electors meet to insulate state results from being challenged in Congress. So that's Safe Harbor Day. So again, another step towards this long process of finally just everyone hopefully agreeing that like, okay, Joe Biden is our next president. This shit, It's just so fucking crazy the way people are acting. It just, it's wild. There were a lot, and I mean a lot, of upset people in 2016. I am certain and know that nobody acted in this way and just denied the results of our election system the way it has happened this year. It's absolutely insane. It it really is, and it has to make you wonder what was so different about the environment, what's different about the reasons people are reacting the way they are, why they believe things, why they don't. But... It's definitely interesting to see the difference between four years and evaluating sort of the differences there. I feel like even four years ago, might not even be talking about Safe Harbor Day. That's maybe not something that you would write. I'm going to be so honest right now. I had no idea what it was because why would we? Like when after Election Day and especially weeks after, even if there were legal battles, we agree we move on accept the results but the fact that we have to celebrate safe harbor day (laughs) and be like look it's certified it's like no shit like of course it is we that's how our democracy works but again this year has been so unprecedented that it just brought safe harbor day to the forefront of our news cycle like who the fuck would have thought but yeah shit show of course what's new 2020 but moving on to our last story congress is to vote on a stopgap funding bill as COVID-19 aid talks continue. So the U.S. Congress will vote this week on a one-week stopgap funding bill to provide more time for our congressional members to reach a deal on COVID-19 relief and an overarching spending bill to avoid a government shutdown. The government shutdown, that looming fucking term that has happened three out of the four years Trump has been in office, by the way. And there's a potential now that there could be a four out of four situation here of a government shutdown under this president. I mean, you know what? Here's the thing. I mean, gotta love, you know, consistent record. But this government shutdown, basically it occurs when Congress fails to fund the government. So Congress doesn't act by Friday Thousands of government workers considered non-essential would again be furloughed or forced to work without pay until the shutdown ends. So just think in this current scenario, so many people are already out of jobs, they're already furloughed. What's going to make this worse is bringing those unemployment numbers further down and people further out of work. Not exactly great, right? So shutdown likely have ripple effects, like we're saying, affecting everything from air travel to government health agencies Handling the coronavirus pandemic, again, great timing. Gotta love it. National parks may close. So, you know, that vacation that you're like planning with your gaggle of friends. Literally doing that as we speak, actually. Planning a national parks trip. So, I swear to God. See, there you have it. Like, if Maddie's trip gets canceled because of these motherfuckers. I'm coming for Mitch McConnell's head. Just kidding. FBI, <laughs> don't take me down. I promise I won't actually. It was a joke. No, but again, how are we not getting aid out to people right now? Like, this is insane. Lawmakers in the Republican-led Senate and Democratic-run House of Representatives need to enact a government spending measure by Friday. But 
as we know, shit is just too partisan, too divided for us to work together anymore, apparently, especially in a crisis mode. Like, that's insane. So House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell are hoping to attach a long-awaited COVID-19 relief to a broad $1.4 trillion spending bill. And so both sides are under, like, mounting pressure to keep the government open and deliver a fresh infusion of coronavirus aid to families. Yeah, it's the, the numbers on everything are absolutely staggering at this point. And so, I mean, look, I think in the past, especially through government shutdowns of every administration, it always amazes me how people could be so stubborn. And again, it's coming from me, who's like incredibly stubborn. But when there's so much on the line, there just seems to be like a lack of understanding and a removal of like humanity and empathy and a lack of understanding of how the, you know, government running on tax dollars is supposed to or essentially promises certain services and programs and then can't fall through. I mean, even government jobs. I mean, think about the post office, right? I mean, that's under that. Yeah. It's really frustrating. It really is. And so hopefully, again, by the end of the week, there will be some kind of understanding. I mean, the rumor mill is like saying that they're coming to some kind of agreement, but you never, ever know especially with Mitch McConnell. So we will see. We will see. But that is it for our top stories and for this episode. And we do want to obviously always continue to push paying attention to what's going on in Georgia. If that's you wanting to donate to the campaigns going on there for the Georgia runoffs, or if you want to volunteer and like phone bank and text bank, all of that is very much needed and very helpful. And As we see, really, with just even that last story, how important it would be and how crucial and impactful it would be um, to flip the Senate and to be able to actually easily come to a COVID-19 relief agreement between our our House and our Senate. And that could happen if we, you know, flip the Senate in Georgia, which is possible. So if you want to get involved, there will be links in the episode description so head there and get involved fingers crossed like maddie said the links are in our bio so check them out if you are a resident of georgia just a reminder that early voting starts on the 14th so make sure to get to it of course if you guys have any questions um, or in need of any specific resources we're happy to get those to you so please just send us a dm or an email girl on the gov the podcast at gmail.com it's where to find us and of course it's a great moment just to plug our social is girl in the gov the podcast and girl in the gov one on twitter so hit us up we're we're always checking your messages yeah and don't forget to subscribe rate and review and please like share our show if you guys like it share it around to your friends and family um but we will be talking to you guys next wednesday Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.